So, sorry for the delay again. I appreciate seeing you here today. Let's uh, get underway. We'll open with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost. Grant us by that same spirit to be truly wise, and every true choice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. May the divine assistance remain always with us, and may the souls of the faithful departed to the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. O Mary, help of Christians, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Our holy guardian angels, pray for us. Saints Peter and Paul, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, I uh, appreciate seeing you. I know some of you have come from quite a distance. And uh, as you see, we've made some efforts to record tonight's session. Hopefully I'll be in a little bit better form than I was last time. Um, but we have uh, someone who's all driven all the way from Columbus and, and someone all the way from Louisville. But actually, I got a request from Switzerland that we record tonight's session, so I figured we would make an effort to do so. And I appreciate those efforts on behalf of uh, Mr. Lawson and Mr. Gorey to do so. Uh, as I mentioned last time, uh, when we were talking about the syllabus of errors put out by, uh, issued by Pope Pius IX in 1864, his original intent was to publish the syllabus of errors facing the Church at that time when he defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception in 1854. In fact, it took another 10 years in order to have the syllabus ready for publication. And it finally was published on December 8th, 1864, on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, which had just been established 10 years before, uh, during our Civil War here in the United States. This document was issued. And the document was hotly contested, of course, by all of those worldlings who opposed the Church, all of those whose naturalism and rationalism had led them to errors, about the church, about our Lord, about God, about faith at all, any faith, any supernatural faith of any kind, all of those people opposed the decrees of Pope Pius IX in the Syllabus of Errors. And of course, as I mentioned, the years then preceding the meeting of the First Vatican Council were years of great anticipation. Anticipation on the part of Catholics looking for the definition of the infallibility of the Supreme Pontiff, and trepidation, dread, actually rage by those who hated what Pope Pius IX had said in the Syllabus of Errors, in his A.E. Proposition, propositions condemn, condemning basically the modern world, the whole thrust of what we know as the modern world, with its, as I mentioned, uh, rationalism and naturalism leading to pantheism and so on. All of these isms that were so erroneous and actually downright evil. So the years leading up to the convoking and the assembling of the First Vatican Council were years of tremendous controversy. There were efforts made outside the church to prevent the council from meeting. There were also efforts made within the church. Tremendous pressures brought on prelates, threats of every kind, 
And uh, for some timid souls, this was a reason not to pronounce the dogma, because they feared the world's reaction. Even the reaction of some liberal Catholics, they feared. But for others, like, such as Bishop Spalding of Baltimore, this was not a reason uh, to refuse to uh, define the dogma of papal infallibility. It was all the more reason to make that definition, for the sake of clarity, to draw the lines very clearly. This is the Catholic thinking about things. Well, as I mentioned, the first impulse toward this syllabus of errors uh, came in 1849 already, and there was work that was done uh, throughout the 1850s. Finally, uh, it was published by Pope Pius IX on December 8, 1864. And uh, it was called a syllabus containing the most important errors of our time which had been condemned by our Holy Father Pope Pius XI in allocutions, at consistories, in encyclicals, and other apostolic letters. So it was a kind of a, well, exactly what it says, a syllabus, a compendium of errors listed that were at various times condemned by Pope Pius IX. And I said to you before, this was considered very remarkable because Pope Pius IX was elected with the reputation of being such an extreme liberal that many suspected that he was a, a crypto-mason. And yet, this syllabus uh, hit uh, with the force of a, a nuclear blast in the world, in the church. Uh, just looking at the list of topics that he, that he uh, addressed in the syllabus of errors is very interesting. Uh, for example, the first section of the syllabus of errors, numbers 1 to 7, refer to pantheism, naturalism, absolute rationalism, the philosophical errors of the day. And then numbers 8 to 14 concern moderate rationalism, the results of naturalism and rationalism philosophically lead to religious indifferentism. And that's the, that is the topic covered in 15 and 18 in the syllabus. Indifferentism toward religion and false tolerance in religious matters. And then socialism, communism, secret societies, Bible societies, liberal clerical associations, errors regarding the church and her rights are covered from 19 to 38. Errors on the state and its relation to the church are addressed from 39 to 55. So there are a total of of uh, 16 entries just on that subject alone. Errors on natural and Christian ethics from 56 to 64. Errors on Christian marriage, 65 to 74. Nine entries on errors with regard to marriage. Errors on the temporal power of the Pope from 75 to 76. Errors in connection with modern liberalism. Then complete the syllabus numbers 77 to 80. So you see the, the breadth of this, of this condemnation of, Saint, of Pope Pius IX in these 80 statements taken from the various uh, decrees that he'd issued, various declarations he'd made, the consistories that he'd given and so on. They are all gathered together, and you can see why it took so long. Uh, 
the church wanted not only to have a, a breadth to cover the errors of the modern world, and there were so many errors at the time that had to be addressed, but the church wanted to make sure that it was extremely precise in condemning. Her choice of language was very, very careful. So it took from 1849 until 1864. That much work was put into the syllabus of errors, and the more controversy that raged about this, the more careful the church had to be, the more forthright the church had to be. Now, when you consider the, the significance of the syllabus of errors of Opius the Ninth, and then you consider that the First Vatican Council was meeting just a matter of five years after and was going to deal with the issue of papal infallibility, you can see why world things were terrified that the church would uh, draw the line, the battle line, so clearly. The, the world benefits a great deal from confusion. And Satan, of course, is the master of confusion. He wants uh, everything to be gray. No black, no white, everything to be gray. And um, he doesn't want any lines drawn. He doesn't want to blur the lines. He wants to erase the lines. And the fear was that by declaring the infallibility of the Pope, the Church would be saying that virtually everything the Pope says is infallibly correct. But the worst part of it was that the Church might be declaring the Pope is infallible in making these statements of condemnation to the modern world that he made in the Syllabus of Errors. And um, the, uh, the prelates who opposed the, the definition of the dogma of papal infallibility did not oppose the belief in the infallibility of the Pope, as you know. There were only one or two, in fact, who actually did not believe. Most of those, by far, who opposed the definition of papal infallibility at Vatican I, opposed it because they were afraid. Because they were afraid of the consequences. How not only, as I say, the, the world would react, but how liberal Catholics would react. This actually illustrates the need for Pope Pius the, the tense condemnation of the errors of modernism 50 years later. Actually, in this case, 40 years later, 1907, with Pashanti Domenici these ideas had been at work in the Church all of that time, going back through the 1800s. And I think it is, it is a kind of indication of where the church stood in the middle 1800s that there were so many bishops, about one-fifth of the bishops present at Vatican I were of the party to oppose the definition of the dogma of the infallibility of the Pope because they were afraid of the consequences, not because they didn't believe in it. Already, the the enemies of the church were at work within the church, and they already had quite a rich harvest. It is quite interesting that after the pronunciation of the dogma, almost to a man, every one of those who had opposed the dogma publicly, openly, manifestly subscribed to it, taught it themselves, accepted it, embraced it without hesitation after it was defined by the church, because they believed it. 
And then they waited for the consequences to fall on them in their dioceses. God rewarded the church for her forthrightness and her courage um, by what followed. Um, the faint of heart were rallied by the di- definition. Catholics were cheered by this because it was a confirmation, of course, of what they already believed. What is interesting about the dogma, the definition, as I mentioned to you before, is what it says about the infallibility of the Pope and the narrow circumstances. It did not say that the Pope is infallible whenever he speaks on any subject at any time. It did not say the Pope is uh, infallible at any time, even when he speaks on matters of faith and morals. It gave these very narrow circumstances in its definition of papal infallibility under which the Pope must be considered infallible. It even talked about the language that he uses. He must make it very clear that he's intending to bind the consciences of all the faithful throughout the entire world in matters of faith and morals, speaking in his capacity as the vicar of Christ, invoking the supreme apostolic authority of St. Peter and St. Paul. I mean, the language even is very important to determine when the Pope is speaking infallibly. Now, does that infallibility apply to any of these teachings in the Syllabus of Errors? Well, actually, yes, it does. There are definitely statements made in the Syllabus of Errors condemning errors of the modern world that are taken from infallible statements by Pope Pius IX. Are all of the statements in the Syllabus of Errors uh, endowed with the, 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 the infallibility? Well, again, the theologians say one has to go to the original documents, the original decrees from which those condemnations are taken. And the authority behind each one of those pronouncements is that in the, to be found in the original statement of the Pope, whether it meets the criterion, the criteria given by the First Vatican Council. Curiously enough, we're going to look at one of those, one of those statements tonight, and then go on to look at Vatican II and see how the two compare. This is one thing I wanted to cover tonight. Again, we can't cover it in great depth, but I just these are more or less signposts to point in different directions for you to do further study. But they do raise some very interesting questions about the Church in our own day. Where is she? And what do we do to address the circumstances the Church is in? The uh, syllabus of errors here takes us, well, we go to number 55 in the syllabus of errors. This is what we read. The church ought to be separated from the state and the state from the church. This was condemned in an allocution of Pope Pius IX on September 27, 1852. The allocution was called Achevisimum, most bitter or most sharp. The this is actually the comp- concluding statement uh, on civil society and in itself, in its relationship to the church. Those uh, statements condemned, those propositions condemned in the syllabus run from 39 to 55. What you find is that uh, in the syllabus of error, when it comes down to looking at human rights in modern society, It condemns the idea of modern society, modern nations, 
holding all religions officially equal. In other words, what we would call religious indifferentism. Uh, it's kind of a dogma of our times, as we're told, that the, the government must basically uh, hold all religions equal and must be separated. The church and the state must be separate entities. As we're told, there must be a wall of separation between the two, quoting Thomas Jefferson. In the syllabus of errors propositions um, taken from 15 through 18, we find every man is free to embrace and profess that religion which guided by the light of reason he shall consider true. That is Condem uh, actually condemned in Maxima Queen of an allocution, and also in uh, the, the condemnation of this error, multiplices inter, of June 10th, 1851. Another 16, man may, in the observance of any religion whatsoever, find the way of eternal salvation and arrive at eternal salvation. Condemned in the encyclical Qui Pluribus in 1846. Good hope, at least, is to be entertained of the eternal salvation of all those who are not at all in the true Church of Christ. Condemned in the encyclical Quanto Confitiamur in 1863. Protestantism is nothing more than another form of the same true Christian religion, in which form it is given to please God equally as in the Catholic Church. Condemned in the encyclical Nocitis in 1849. So you see these uh, propositions are taken from various statements of Pope Pius IX at various times. There we went all the way from 1849 to 1863. Now, let's take a look at, th at this whole idea. I'm just zeroing in on this one thing condemned in the uh, syllabus of errors by Pope Pius IX and d focusing in on that tonight because I want to draw us to a certain point. We see uh, this, this issue. Um, I want it to become clear that the Second Vatican Council was called precisely with the intention to reject the teachings of the First Vatican Council. As I mentioned to the First Vatican Council, was never concluded. <laughs> it was adjourned under pressure from the invading mercenary troops under, under Garibaldi, the Mason. But the First Vatican Council itself is still an open question. This is one of the, one of the objections made by cardinals when uh, John XXIII proposed calling a Second Vatican Council. He was told you can't call a Second Vatican Council. The First Vatican Council never finished. It's continuing. It's just adjourned. <coughs> but John XXIII's point was precisely to call a Second Vatican Council to essentially erase the First Vatican Council, even its dogmatic definitions. But let me turn just for a moment here to an encyclical that was issued by Pope Pius IX also on December 8, 1864, the same date as the publication of the syllabus. Now this encyclical is called Quanta Cura. As you know, these uh, names of encyclicals are not actually titles. They're merely the first words of the Latin encyclical, and that's how the encyclicals are identified, by the first words of the text of the encyclical. 
Now this Quatacura in English bears the title Condemning Current Errors. As I mentioned, it was propagated December 8th, 1864. And like all encyclicals, it was addressed not to the Catholic faithful at large, but it was addressed to the bishops. It was the responsibility of the bishops to receive the letter from the Pope and then to communicate its teachings to the priests, to the people. Only since Vatican II have the modern, have the, the popes of Vatican II and the Vatican II Church addressed themselves not to their bishops to talk to the people, but addressed it to just everybody. Uh, now, this is to be found in the encyclical Quanticura of Pope Pius IX, and this again uh, harkens to some of the statements made on, uh, on the subject of the place of religion, notably the true religion, in the politics of the state, in the laws of the state. This is what Pope Pius IX wrote. For you well know, venerable brethren, that at this time men are found not a few who, applying to civil society the impious and absurd principle of naturalism, as they call it, dare to teach that the best constitution of public society and also civil progress altogether require that human society be conducted and governed without regard being had to religion any more than if it did not exist, or at least without any distinction being made between the true religion and false religions. And against the doctrine of Scripture, of the Church, and of the Holy Fathers, and I'll repeat that because it's very important. He says, and against the doctrine of Scripture, of the Church, and of the Holy Fathers, they do not hesitate to assert that, quote, the, that is the best condition of civil society in which no duty is recognized as attached to the civil power of restraining by enacted penalties offenders against the Catholic religion, except so far as public peace may require. And he continues, from which totally false idea of social government they do not fear to foster that erroneous opinion most fatal in its effects on the Catholic Church and the salvation of souls, called by our predecessor Gregory XVI an insanity, that liberty of conscience and worship is each man's personal right, which ought to be legally proclaimed and asserted in every rightly constituted society, and that a right resides in the citizens to an absolute liberty which should be restrained by no authority, whether ecclesiastical or civil, whereby they may be able openly and public to, to manifest and declare any of their ideas, whatever, either by word of mouth, by the press, or in any other way. But while they rashly affirm this, they do not think and consider that they are preaching liberty of perdition, and that if human arguments are always allowed free room for discussion, there will never be wanting men who will dare to resist truth and to trust in the flowing speech of human wisdom, whereas we know from the very teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ how carefully Christian faith and wisdom should avoid this most injurious babbling. <coughs> now this statement of Pope Pius IX in the encyclical Quanticura certainly contradicts the modern idea. 
that people should have the right in civil society to say whatever they please. When it comes to matters of religion, uh, that there should be no recognition of any true religion as opposed to any false religion, but that the state must be at least indifferent to all religions, as though they were all equally true or all equally, equally false. But the idea that there would be one true religion is absolutely forbidden for the good constitution of a nation, of its laws, of its government. Now, let's take a look at that and examine that in light of the teaching of the Catholic Church. When you, when you compose this to what is said here, with regard to the teaching of uh, Vatican II, you find it very interesting. If you look at the Second Vatican Council's teaching on religious liberty, you find a, a diametrical opposition between this teaching of the Church, this condemnation of Pope Pius IX, and the teaching of the Vatican Council, Second uh, Vatican II. Why? Because he says that it is not right to have a government as though a civil government would have a right to ignore God, as though God is not the God of human society as much as he is of individual human beings. So if God proposes a right of his to demand that men believe his revelation, it is impossible that there could be a God-given right to men as individuals, but human societies either, to defy him. God cannot give a right to defy him. To suggest that God could give a right to defy him, to teach even errors about him, which the church defines as blasphemy, would be to commit blasphemy against God, to deny that he is God, to even attribute to him a right to lie about him, that God gives a right to lie about him, to misrepresent him, and to lead souls to hell. This cannot be so. So, when you read the declaration of the Second Vatican Council, which came out December 8th, 1965, so exactly one day and one year, uh, one, one day less than uh, 100 years, 101 years after the declaration of Quantacura, you find exactly, exactly the contradiction to this decree Quantacura. The decree of Vatican II on religious liberty, which is known in Latin as Dignitatis Humanae Personae, says that it is a declaration of religious freedom on the right of the person and of communities to social and civil freedom in matters religious promulgated by His Holiness Pope Paul VI on December 7, 1965. And uh, it starts out well enough. It starts out by saying a sense of the dignity of the human person has been impressing itself more and more deeply on the consciousness of contemporary man. One could argue that point. 
It goes on in the second paragraph to say something that you and I as Catholics could agree with. First, the Council professes its belief that God himself has made known to mankind the way in which men are to serve him, and thus be saved in Christ and come to blessedness. True? Yes, absolutely true. We believe that this one true religion subsists in the Catholic and Apostolic Church, to which the Lord Jesus committed the duty of spreading it abroad among all men. True? Depends on how you interpret it. One true religion subsisting in the Catholic Church, using the word subsisting, is not the same as saying is the Roman Catholic Church. There's been a, a lot of ink spilled over the use of that word, claiming that it is totally inadequate, and it already opens up a, a, a plethora of questions about what their real intent was there. Were they implicitly denying that the Catholic Church is the one true church? Or were they just saying that it's one of those churches in which the Church of Christ subsists? The choice of words is very interesting. But it goes on, Thus Christ spoke to the apostles, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have enjoined upon you. On their part, all men are bound to seek the truth, especially in what concerns God and his church, and to embrace the truth they come to know, and to hold fast to it. Now, could we agree with that? Yes, there is an obligation on the part of men to embrace the revelation of God, to accept it, to submit to it. Absolutely. Sounds fine so far. When you read about the history of the Council, you find that that paragraph was added, actually, it was added to appease a large segment of the fathers, at least 70 of them, called the Cetus Internationalis Patrum, the Cetus, the, the uh, assembly or the gathering or the association of the of international father, the international association of the fathers of the council, who had gathered to resist this, and the liberalism at the council. And they did not want this document. They were not going to vote for this. It was going to be rather but a scandal because such a n numerous group of bishops, such a number of bishops were protesting against this document that they were not going to approve this document. That the leaders of the council determined that they would amend the document by adding that paragraph that I just read which sounds Catholic enough, to induce those fathers to sign this document. In fact, Archbishop Lefebvre was one of those they were trying to appease. Archbishop Segov, the Amatina Brazil, was another one. They were trying to appease them with this statement that the Catholic faith is the one true faith, and everyone has an obligation to adhere to it. But no sooner do they have this paragraph in the document of Vatican, Vatican II on religious liberty, then they began, though, to go into Section 2. And that's where you find uh, a departure, not only a departure, but a contradiction. It says, this Vatican Council declares that the human person has a right to religious freedom. This freedom means that all men are to be immune from coercion on the part of individuals or of social groups and of any human power in such wise that no one is to be forced to act in a manner contrary to his own beliefs, whether privately or publicly, whether alone or in association with others within due limits. Now here you have a statement 
that says the government should not have the right, must not have the right to compel someone to act against his conscience. Is that correct? Actually, yes. You cannot compel someone to act against his conscience. You cannot compel him to do something that he believes is morally sinful. It says here, the council further declares that the right to religious freedom has its foundation in the very dignity of the human person, as this dignity is known through the revealed word of God and by reason itself. This right of the human person to religious freedom is to be recognized in the constitutional law whereby society is governed, and thus it is to become a civil right. Well, so far, this doesn't sound too bad. The problem is, you see, rooting this idea of religious liberty in the dignity of the human person depends now upon how you define the relationship of the dignity of the human person to fidelity to God. There's an issue here that's arising very soon here. They continue, it is in accordance with these, this, their dignity as persons, that is, beings endowed with reason and free will, and therefore privileged to bear personal responsibility, that all men should be at once impelled by nature and also bound by moral obligation to seek the truth, especially religious truth. We can agree with that statement. They are also bound to adhere to the truth once it is known and to order their whole lives in accord with the demands of truth. That is absolutely correct. However, men cannot discharge these obligations in a manner in keeping with their own nature unless they enjoy immunity from external coercion as well as psychological freedom, whatever that means. Therefore, the right to religious freedom has its foundation not in the subjective disposition of the person, but in his very nature. And therefore, they continue, in consequence of the right to this, the right to this immunity continues to exist even in those who do not live up to their obligation of seeking the truth and adhering to it, and the exercise of this right is not to be impeded, provided that just public order is observed. So now, we've expanded a little bit upon the original notion. We're continuing to expand upon this idea. Although men have an obligation to seek the truth, even if they don't seek the truth, they still, by virtue of their very nature, as men have an intrinsic right to religious liberty, truth or not, they cannot be subject to coercion, not still to do something contrary to what they believe or profess to believe, no matter how mistaken they may be. Okay, We might even be willing to go this far. But then the council makes a leap. It's one thing to say that you cannot force someone by law to do something that he believes is morally wrong. It's a very different matter to say that you cannot restrain someone by law from doing something that he believes is right. That's a very different matter. On his part, it says, man perceives and acknowledges the imperatives of the divine law through the mediation of conscience. In all his activity, a man is bound to follow his conscience in order that he may come to God, the end and purpose of life. That is true. It follows, it follows, they say, that man is not to be forced to act in a manner contrary to his conscience. All right? We've already conceded that point. Now there is a leap here. 
nor, on the other hand, is he to be restrained from acting in accordance with his conscience, especially in matters religious. Now, that's a different matter. And he has this right no matter what. We are, we are seeing here, being set up in this document, the last of the documents of Vatican II, something that is totally contrary to the teachings of the Church, in the, notably voiced in the encyclical Apostolic uh, Quanta Cura by Pope Pius IX, that religious opinions, that religions themselves, there is no distinction to be made between what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false, not in law, not by governments, not by nations. The idea that one cannot be restrained regardless of what his religious belief, belief is, and the only limit there is public order, is something that the church would condemn. That is not true. It tells you that the reason for this is that the exercise of religion of its very nature consists before all else in those internal, voluntary, and free acts whereby man sets the course of his life directly toward God. How does that support what they just said, that a person cannot be restrained regardless of what his religious belief is about what he should do? No merely human power, it says, can either command or prohibit acts of this kind. That is not true. The Church has never taught that before. It says here the social nature of man requires that he should give external expression to his internal acts of religion, that he should share with others in matters religious, that he should profess his religion and community. Notice what they're saying here is that no matter what the religious position may be in, no matter how erroneous, no matter how blasphemous, it cannot be restrained by any civil power. And this paragraph of the document on religious liberty concludes by saying, Injury, therefore, is done to the human person and to the very order established by God for human life if the free exercise of religion is denied in society, provided just public order is observed. And that is not what the Church has taught. In fact, the Church has solemnly condemned this proposition. But the worst, the worst of it is... that the document continues by saying that it is actually the teaching of God, the teaching of Christ in the Gospels, that this is God's teaching, that it is not the responsibility of civil government to distinguish between true, the true religion and false religions, but it is the responsibility of government not to distinguish between true and false religions. This, this document even goes further than that. It even says that one, no one can be restrained, not by any civil power on earth, from practicing his false religion, and that this is a God-given right because of the dignity of the human person, as it is called here. It is a natural right of man from God. Now, as I say, when you follow this document back to the, the ultimate reasoning, it provides, it provides an argument that 
It is God himself who has given man the right, because of the dignity of his human nature, to openly, publicly profess error about faith, about Christ, about the Blessed Trinity, and that this right is guaranteed by God himself for man to profess error about him. How can this be reconciled to the church's teaching that the profession of error about God, as St. Thomas Aquinas has pointed out so clearly, is blasphemy, the worst kind of sin, as he calls it, to attribute to God something that is true, to, uh, to, uh, to attribute to God something that is not true about him, or to deny to God something that is true of him, is blasphemy. The document on religious liberty seems to claim that God guarantees to man, because of his personal human dignity, a civil right to blaspheme and to convince others of their errors and lead others away from the truth that God has revealed. God has done this. God has set this up in his own, uh, this opposition to himself, to his own teaching, that he is in that sense a God of contradiction. It is a blasphemy to say that. Now, let me point this out, though, that the church does acknowledge under the current circumstances, that it can be prudent to allow a, a to tolerate a religious uh, indifferentism in this sense that there can be allowed uh, li- liberty of religious practice in a society if the consequence would be that false religion would be guaranteed, that true religion would be persecuted. The church would see that as the lesser of two evils to allow all religions, including the true religion, to have liberty of practice, then that false religion should be guaranteed and the true religion should be persecuted. Any religion that would see itself as the work of Jesus Christ could settle for no less than that. And so the church understands that there are certain evils that can be tolerated. The problem with this document is that that it's not what this document says. This document does not say that circumstances might make it necessary to tolerate what is actually an evil circumstance, where God is officially rejected as though the government of a state uh, sees no obligation to recognize the true God, sees no obligation to defend the true religion, to uphold the true religion. Then it might be tolerated that the church would see to it that religion itself is not touched by law and not forbidden by law. But that toleration is of an evil. This document on religious liberty says not only is it a good, this religious indifferentism, It said it is the necessary good, it is the right way for society, it is the only right way to be for a society to be established, and furthermore, it is God who says so. 
So God has exempted human society from any obligations to Him. Is He or is He not God? How can He be the God of men individually, but not the God of nations, even when they are assembled in societies? Even men, when they are assembled in governments, do we not all say that all authority comes from God? That there can be no true authority that does not originate in Him? You see, the document of Vatican II on the subject of religious liberty contradicts multiple teachings of the Catholic Church. We should not be surprised, therefore, to find that one of the fathers of the Council actually stated afterwards, one of, the, one of the theological experts, I should say, of the Council explicitly stated after Vatican II that there is a manifest contradiction, an inescapable contradiction, between the teaching of Pope Pius IX in Quatacora and the teaching of the Vatican Council, Second Vatican Council in Libertas Dignitatis and he even said that how to reconcile this blatant contradiction, he can't do it. He said this would have to be left somehow to the church to show how this inescapable contradiction can somehow be reconciled. Only modernists could think in those terms. Um, the reason why I mentioned this particular issue is because it is in that last document of Vatican II that the, the, its character as the anti-Vatican I becomes most clear. Now there are other documents in Vatican II that are, again, open uh, rejections of the teaching of the Church in the Syllabus of Errors of Pius IX, the teaching of the Church in Quanticora, the teaching of the Church in uh, the, second, the First Vatican Council. Uh, we, were, we were duly warned, though. We should not be surprised to find that this is so. Um, we find that um, leaders of the Council explicitly stated this, as, as much as stated this, when they were talking about the role of uh, Vatican II and what Vatican II was called to do. Uh, one of you has actually sent me something rather interesting here. Um, uh, sent me a, a statement from the interesting website Tradition in Action. Uh, this is entitled uh, Bird's Eye View of the News by Attila Cinque Guamares. And uh, it talks about the current celebration of the 50th anniversary of the opening of the Vatican Council and the starting of the so-called Year of Faith. And it starts with actually with a headline, Vatican II was convened explicitly against Vatican I. And I'll quote from this. Among these documents, uh, it talks about the various documents, talking about the relationship between Vatican II and Vatican I, why Vatican II was called. It says, among these documents was a note by Monsignor Loris Capovilla, Secretary of John the Twenty-Third, in which, on behalf of the Pope, he gave instructions for the redaction of the bull Humane Salutis, the bull that convened the Council. That's the Second Vatican Council. 
On the text typed by Capovilla, there are side notes handwritten by John the 23rd himself. It is clearly affirmed in this text that uh, Roncalli assures us, Marco Roncalli assures us, that the Pope did not desire to follow the course of Vatican I, because neither in its substance nor in its form would it correspond to the present-day situation. In other words, he was saying that Vatican I did not correspond to the situation prevailing in the world today. And we see a rebuttal of the Church's position on the temporal order taught also by Pope Pius IX, because now the note emphasizes the Church demonstrates that she wants to be mater and magistra, mother and teacher. In other words, not a condemner of the modern world, but she wants to adopt the role of mother and teacher of the modern world. Would this ordinarily be bad? Ordinarily, it could be interpreted in the correct way. But John the Twenty-Third made it very clear in his statement opening the council, a statement calling the council, that he was setting out a new course. He was going to change the entire approach of the church to the modern world. And we saw that in a very striking way in Vatican II, uh, when Vatican II, which was called to address the church's existence in the modern world, failed in any of her documents, in the text of her, of her statements, to condemn atheistic communism. Even in Gaudium et Spes, the church in the modern world, there is no explicit condemnation of atheistic communism. A condemnation was added as a footnote to that document. It is incredible that a Vatican Council, a council called to address the problems faced by the Church in the modern day, to address the modern world, would in the course of its text not even mention communism. The only reason why there was a footnote added about communism to that document on the Church in the modern world was because there was a petition signed by 400 bishops at the council urging the explicit condemnation of atheistic communism in the document on the Church in the Modern World. And that document, that petition, disappeared. It was found later in a drawer in the desk of one of the secretaries of the council, a Monsignor Gloriou. And when he was, it was demanded of him why he had simply put this petition in the drawer of a desk and locked it away there. He said because it was submitted after the deadline. That was a lie. It was proven to be a lie. Nonetheless, even after that, the petition of 400 of the bishops of the council demanding an explicit condemnation of atheistic communism. The only reference to communism appears in a footnote in the document on the Church in the Modern World. This was chicanery. This, this is kind of typifies how the Council was conducted, Vatican I. But let me just go to some, some voices of those who were rather prominent at Vatican, Vatican II, I should say, Vatican II. This is how things proceeded at Vatican II. Some of the leading lights at Vatican II, Cardinal Swainens and Cardinal Koenig, commented on 
what Vatican II was to be, what in fact it served it to be. Cardinal Swedens referred to Vatican II as the French Revolution in the Church. Now one could not come up with a statement more bold than that. A revolution that was so anti-God and so bitterly anti-Catholic, which had produced uh, so many martyrs, produced really the modern world as we know it, the very modern world condemned by Pope Pius IX and the First Vatican Council. Cardinal Swedens refers to as the French Revolution within the Church. And his voice was actually echoed by uh, Cardinal Franz Koenig, who was the late Archbishop of Vienna. He was a prominent progressive at the Second Vatican Council. He actually played a key role in preparations for the Council. In fact, his contributions to the Council before, during, and of course after its implementation would be very hard to exaggerate. It would be hard to find someone of greater authority in speaking of the Council. Well, in his interview with the uh, publication Chiesa Dove Vai, Where is the Church Going? Cardinal Franz Kudig answered questions by a journalist, uh, Gianni Lichieri, on the Second Vatican Council and the future of the Church. And here is how this went. Lichieri asked uh, Cardinal Kudig, in your opinion, did the Council give its beneficial fruits in Europe also? He says, yes, absolutely, also in Europe, but here many conciliar documents didn't leave the shelves. For instance, there is a lot of talk about liturgy, as if it were the sole problem that the Council faced. Further, people give too much importance to the fringes, that is, the radicals, that try to push ahead and forget the authentic progress Vatican II produced. In the Church, this progressive, this progress, took place primarily through the acknowledgement of the positive aspects of history, the sciences, and the arts. In short, those human categories that less than 100 years earlier the syllabus had rejected, and only 48 years before the encyclical Pascendi again condemned. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying that the Council documents gave credit for the changes that came in to the very things that a hundred years before were condemned by the syllabus of errors, and which were condemned by Pope Pius X in the uh, encyclical against modernism. Again, that's a very bold statement to make, but uh, perhaps the most telling statement is that made by uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, one of the young theological experts of the Council, now Benedict XVI, he actually went so far as to say that the document of Vatican II, Gaudium et Spes, is a counter-syllabus, which is to say it's an anti-syllabus of errors. It was written to be a rejection of the syllabus of errors of Pope Pius IX. Some of those statements in the uh, document, the syllabus of errors, are infallible statements of church teaching, taken from infallible you know, pronouncements of the Pope. And uh, in the, the book Les Principes de la Théologie Catholique, 
uh, Ratzinger, and this actually was published in 1982. This is what Ratzinger says. If one is looking for a global diagnosis of the text of Gaudium et Spes, that again is the uh, text of the document on the church in the modern world, one could say that it, along with the texts on religious liberty and world religions, is a revision of the syllabus of Pius IX, a kind of counter-syllabus, he calls it. But listen to his explanation also. Undoubtedly, many things have changed since then. The new ecclesiastical policy of Pius XI established a certain openness toward the liberal conception of the state. In a silent but persevering combat, exegesis and church history increasingly adopted the postulates of liberal science. So he's already talking about church history as a subject of teaching in the church, and exegesis, her way of explaining the sacred scriptures, increasingly over this time adopted the postulates of liberal science. On the other hand, in face of the great political upheavals of the 20th century, liberalism was obliged to accept notable corrections. This happened because, first in Central Europe, conditioned by the situation, the unilateral dependence on the positions taken by the Church through the initiatives of Pope Pius IX and Pius X against the new period of history opened up by the French Revolution was, to a large extent, corrected via facti. Again, do you follow what he's saying here? The original, well, the original German and and uh, even the French is clearer than it is in English, perhaps. But if I may explain what he's saying here, because it's hard to follow if you don't have the text in front of you. He's saying that what Pope Pius IX said about the modern times and the errors of the modern world, what Pope Pius X condemned of the errors of the modern world was corrected corrected by the facts of what has actually happened in the world. Their teaching has been corrected, he says, since then, via facti, by means of the fact. They were condemning, he says, the modern world produced by the French Revolution. They have now been, they now stand corrected, he says. But a fundamental new document regarding relations with the world as it had been since 1789, was still lacking. So in other words, what, Saint pa- what Pope Pius IX had taught, what Pope Pius X had taught, were erroneous, no longer applied, they had been corrected, and yet there had been no new document to restate, redefine the Church's position with regard to these developments. This was what he's saying was served by Gaudium et Spes, Vatican II's decree on the modern world, the Church in the modern world. He says, in reality, the mentality that preceded the revolution still reigned in the countries with strong Catholic majorities. Today, almost no one denies Spanish and Italian concordats, accords between the church and the state, tried to conserve too many things from a conception of the world that for a long time had not corresponded to reality. In other words, the agreements the church had entered into with Italy and Spain tried to preserve the old regime, as it were, and didn't recognize modern realities. 
Likewise, almost no one can deny that this dependence on an obsolete conception of relations between the church and the state was matched by similar anachronisms in the domain of education and the attitude taken toward the modern historical critical method. Now, you recently heard uh, Benedict XVI refer to this modern historical critical method in his new book on the childhood of our Lord, which he said uh, was written under the inspiration of the modern historical critical method of examining the scriptures. Anyway, he continues, let us content ourselves here with stating that the text of Gaudium et Spes plays the role of a counter syllabus. He repeats the expression to the measure that it represents an attempt to officially reconcile the church with the world as it had become after 1789. On the one hand, this visualization alone clarifies the ghetto complex that we mentioned above. In other words, the church's belief expressed by Pope Pius IX and Pope Pius X in their condemnations of liberalism and modernism represented a ghetto complex. On the other hand, it permits us to understand the meaning of this new relationship between the church and the modern world. World is here understood at death as the spirit of modern times, a new relationship defined by Vatican II. The consciousness of being a detached group that existed in the church viewed this spirit as something separate from herself, and after the hot as well as the cold wars were over, she sought dialogue and cooperation with it. Again, very explicit statement. In the past, the church saw this modern spirit as something alien to her. But now, her role is to embrace it and to seek cooperation, even oneness with it. We can perhaps understand, therefore, why Benedict XVI has made repeated calls for one world government. And all he's doing is repeating the calls made by John XXIII already back in the early 1960s, in which John XXIII called for a one-world governing authority. Uh, Benedict XVI has repeatedly called for a one-world governing authority that would have, as he says, real teeth, that would be able to compel governments to uh, yield to its demands. In this latest statement, when he said that there should be a worldwide moral authority to guide the nations in making their decisions, he said that it should still allow nations liberty. And yet, the contradiction is there. Between what he said in the past and what he's saying now in that regard, but even in saying there should be a moral authority to direct the nations of the world. What good is that unless it also claims a, the ability to invoke force? Especially when he gets to that uh, corollary of all of this, when he says there must be established a worldwide governing authority to control the nation's economies. He referred to it recently as a bank for the world, which would control the currencies of the world. You can see, he really has gone in hook, line, and sinker for this liberal modernist teaching. Uh, 
of embracing the world, the modern secular world, in denial of God officially, which the societies of men, the nations of men, the governments of men do not recognize one true God, one true Savior, one true religion. Quite the contrary. According to his religion, they must not recognize these officially in their laws. Because they must allow everyone the right to affirm or deny anything about God. Can neither constrain them nor restrain them from stating their religious opinions. Now, this brings us to another question here, and that question is uh, the question of obedience. If we realize now that what we're being told from the Vatican has embraced something that is fundamentally opposed to all that we believe as Catholics, that even enshrines as uh, in, in one of its council documents what is blasphemy against God, that he gives a right to men to uh, deny him, that he gives a right for them to profess their denial of him and try to convince others to deny him. In other words, to teach error about him. And that comes from God himself. The question arises for us, where does obedience lie in all of this? Because we see a situation in which this mentality has affected everything. The entire religion has been reinterpreted in this way to reflect this new relationship between the church and the world. Notice, when they say there's now a new relationship between the church and the world, what they're effectively saying is now there's a new relationship between God and the world, between God and the modern world. So we have not just one one instance where there's a, a, a question of being ordered to do something here or something there, an isolated instance where we're ordered to do something that we believe is contrary to the faith, damaging to the church, injurious to souls, we have an entire system that has been imposed based upon false principles, alien to the church, and which the church, in fact, has infallibly condemned. So what are we to do in a case like this? Well, there are those who say that we should obey and just go along and do everything we're told and just trust that it's really okay. There are those who say that that is the Catholic way, that that is the traditional Catholic way to proceed. Just ignore the voice of conscience, ignore what we read in the catechisms, ignore what the church has said in the past, and just carry on dutifully to do exactly what the church the church after Vatican II commands of us. There are quite a number of Catholic people, including now traditional Catholic people, who have done exactly that. They tried that. The problem is their Catholic faith just kept bumping into contradictions. Something had to give. In many cases it was their Catholic faith that gave, but not all. There are others who say, well, we have to oppose those things that are manifestly contrary to the faith, damaging to souls, 
and offensive to God, contrary to the teaching of the church in the past. That's the traditional Catholic way. Look for everything you can obey, and then refuse obedience to the things you, you're convinced you can't obey. Give the benefit of the doubt, though, to the authority that is there. So when you're not sure, go along with it. Only when you're absolutely sure you can't in conscience do something, that's when you have to say no. You have to obey in everything else, though. Well, there are many who are doing that, too. Probably the worst position to adopt is the position of those who say, for sure, that John Paul II, Benedict XVI, really are true popes. There's no doubt about that. But we really don't have to do anything, they say. Now, that is not a Catholic position. That, that's a position one has to rule out. If they are true popes without any question... You can't just say they have no authority whatsoever to command me or anybody else. At least I have no obligation to obey them, even though I recognize that they are true vicars of Christ on earth. I have to obey them in nothing. Even if they told me to pray the Hail Mary, I would have no obligation to pray the Hail Mary, even though I say without a doubt, without any question, you can't even raise the question of whether they are popes or not. That, that is something that is so nonsensical, it almost it defies imagining as a Catholic to take that position. But because we have a, a systematic denial of the Catholic faith, that virtually everything has been changed, all the sacramental rites, the catechism has been revised, the code of canon law has been revised, and is actually now sanctioning things that the church again has condemned as being intrinsically evil. Um, even denying the very meaning of the word communion in Holy Communion uh, by sanctioning giving it to those who are outside the Catholic faith. Redefining the very meaning of the word being in communion with, with someone that is having the same faith with them. Now we have a different question. It's not a matter of being ordered to do certain things. It's a matter of being uh, ordered to accept an entirely new religion. Well, you know what a religion is. A religion is simply the practice of a faith. It's simply a faith put into practice. So if you accept an entirely new religion, the question arises, well, what is the faith behind this entirely new religion? Is it the same faith the, the true Catholic faith behind this new religion that you're giving me. A new form of worship in the Mass and all the sacraments, a new canon, a code of law, new catechism. I mean, this is so sweeping, it affects in the Church everything. The, the worship of God, the belief in the catechism, and even the government, governing power of the church. Those are the three powers that Christ gave to the church. Uh, his power as the prophet to speak in God's name because he is the Son of God, to speak the truth, to teach the faith. Their catechisms, they've changed. His authority to sanctify through the Mass and the sacraments. His his role as priest, the priest, Christ. Sanctifying, that is, a, that is under attack in these new sacraments and the new Mass. His role as king, prophet, priest, and king to govern the faithful as to how they are to live their lives and the rules to govern the church, 
and the faithful, that also now has been revised in the new code of canon law. When our Lord sent the apostles at the end of St. Matthew's Gospel to preach the gospel to all nations, to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost, to baptize all nations, to uh, teach them to observe all things, whatever I have commanded you, there you have expressed these three powers of our Lord as prophet, priest, and king to his apostles. He conveyed this power to them. He gave these powers to the church to use for the salvation of souls. Vatican II and what came out of Vatican II has addressed every single one of those three and totally revised it. And we're told to accept this essentially new religion, a fundamentally new religion, which has replaced the old religion. And with that, now we're being required to adopt a new faith, a faith which Benedict XVI said has adopted an entirely different relationship with the modern world, the French Revolution, which actually rejects the church's understanding not of who the world is, but who she is. This is a revision of the church's understanding of who she is, what the church is. That's where this involved here. Cardinal Benelli said it very well when he said that the difference between the new mass and the traditional mass is a difference of ecclesiology. He said it's a difference of ecclesiology. You know what ecclesiology is? It's a study of the nature of the church. What is the church? He says that's the difference between the new mass and the old mass. An understanding of what the church is. So we do have some very fundamental issues to decide here. Where does obedience lie in this? Now I gave you some information on that last time with regard to the true Catholic understanding of obedience. Those who would tell you that the traditional Catholic position is to obey blindly, unquestioningly, are not right. If they had any knowledge of history whatsoever, they would know this, that if you look back in the history of the Church, you see her tradition what is Catholic tradition with regard to obedience? Well, Catholic tradition with regard to obedience is expressed very well by, by St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa and in many other places when he condemns indiscreet obedience, that is, obeying in something that is not lawful, either because it exceeds the, the person's authority to command He's commanding in an area in which he has no competence whatsoever. Or he's commanding something that is condemned by a higher authority, that a, a higher authority forbids. In this case, the authority is God. In this case, the authority is the church of the past who has spoken infallibly. There is no doubt, for example, just by way of example, that when Pope Pius IX condemned the, the indifferentism of the modern state toward, essentially toward Christ, that he was actually telling us that that was an infallible teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. 
Why? Well, because in the encyclical Quanticura, he says that they teach this contrary to the dogmas of the church, the teachings of the church, the sacred scriptures, and the teaching of the fathers of the church. Now, when Pope Pius IX says that, this doctrine is contrary to this teaching of the church, the sacred scriptures divinely revealed, and the father's teaching, he is actually giving a kind of textbook definition of what heresy is, as the Catholic Church defines it. If you turn to the Code of Canon Law, Canon 1323, how does the Church define what must be believed by an obligation of divine and Catholic faith? Well, in, can, in, in the Canon 1323, the Church defines what must be believed by an obligation of divine and Catholic faith. And in Canon 1325, the Church says that if you deny something that must be believed by, a, by an obligation of divine and Catholic faith, you're a heretic. To deny a teaching that must be believed by an obligation of divine Catholic faith, the Church says you're guilty of heresy. Listen to what it says here. Post-receptum baptismum, after the baptism was received, if anyone, still retaining the name of Christian, or calling himself a Christian, pertinaciously denies... Uh, some or doubts, he says, actually, something, some teaching that must be believed by an obligation of divine and Catholic faith, he is a heretic. This is what it says in the Code of Canon Law. If he pertinaciously denies or even doubts what must be believed by an obligation of divine and Catholic faith, that's what it says here. It says, ex veritatibus, Anything of the truth, ex veritatibus, fide divina et catholia credendis denegat. If he denies anything that must be believed, credendis, of those truths that must be believed, fide divina et catholica, by divine and Catholic faith, he is a heretic. And you turn again to that canon I originally cited to you, canon 1323, and this is what it says. It explains what must be believed by an obligation of divine and Catholic faith. By an obligation of divine and Catholic faith, all those things must be believed, which, so with Latin you have to go to the end of the sentence to find, which are proposed uh, either by the church, it's much more understandable in Latin, sunt quae verbo dei scripto, which are, which things either are by the written word of God, that's sacred scripture, vel tradito cadenter, or are hand down, handed down as contained within sacred scripture, and which are proposed by a solemn judgment of the church, either by her ordinary or universal, uh, by her ordinary and universal magisterium. In other words, if the church proposes something that must be believed as contained in sacred scripture, or handed down by the church, 
And she says, this must be believed, that has an obligation of divine and Catholic faith. We have a statement by Pope Pius IX telling us that this proposition that he's condemning in Quanta Cura is contrary to the teaching of the Church, to the teaching of the sacred scriptures, and to the teaching of the Fathers. One could not have a more authoritative statement that he is telling us that this is something that the Church solemnly condemns by an obligation of divine Catholic faith. In other words, to deny it is heretical. It is not just I who am clumsily telling you this. It has been regarded as such even by the enemies of the Church. This is why when that uh, theological expert at Vatican II, the Dominican, said that there was a contradiction between that statement of Pius the, and he cited that statement of Pope Pius IX in Quanta uh, Cura as being opposed by the teaching of Vatican II. He said, there is an opposition here, and it will be very difficult to explain this. I gave you the citations from the various um, writers, and I put them in the bulletin on Sunday to kind of summarize them. But there, and we're unfortunately moving ahead, running a little bit out of time, and I'm sorry about that. Part of it is starting a little too late, I understand that. But if I can just give you three examples, this is really what I was leading up to tonight. You see, it's one thing to propose these statements from the various writers, popes, fathers of the church, doctors of the church, on obedience, that tell you that if a pope would propose something that would be damaging to souls, damaging to the church, and that would be against, be against Christ, one has an obligation as a Catholic to resist them. This goes totally contrary to the modern concept of the liberal Catholics and even the conservative Novus Ordo Catholics. That the tradition of the Church is to obey, to obey, to obey without question. You have voices from the Church, approved voices of the Church, telling you that is absolutely not the case. St. Robert Bellarmine is a prime example of this. When he says in his work on the authority of the Pope, that if a Pope would command something that would be damaging to the faith or injurious to souls, we must not only refuse to obey, we must also impede the execution of his commands. We must do whatever we can to prevent others from obeying him as well. That is Catholic tradition. That's the Catholic understanding of obedience. But I thought I would give you three examples of that, in fact, in the history of the Church. And I'll do so, try to do so very briefly here. One of these examples you're rather well familiar with, perhaps two of them. One of them had to do with um, St. Athanasius himself. There's a very famous episode from St. Athanasius's life when he was commanded to accept Arius, the heretic, back into communion with him. And Athanasius was actually waiting in his church to deny Arius communion, to refuse to acknowledge Arius as a Catholic, contrary to direct orders. And this would probably have meant the death of Athanasius 
if he had been captured. And you know what happened. As Arius was being conducted in triumph by his followers to this encounter with St. Athanasius, Arius, that's his name in, in Latin, is Arius. We call him Arius in English. Arius became suddenly ill-disposed, disappeared into the bushes, and never came out. And when they found him, they found that his, uh, his midsection had burst open. And it was reminiscent of Judas hanging himself, and his entrails spewed all over. That was the end of Arius, the heretic. In that case, Athanasius was spared. But later on, when Pope Liberius became the Pope, Liberius became convinced that Athanasius was the problem, not the Arians. And at that point, Athanasius was forced to flee for his life. He was actually fleeing from authority. Uh, There is a lot of controversy as to whether or not Liberius actually excommunicated Athanasius, St. Athanasius or not. But one thing is clear, that for some time, Liberius actually upheld the part of the Arians against Athanasius, as though Athanasius was the bad guy. But Athanasius would not give in. He would not surrender. He would not give himself up. In the end, he triumphed, thanks be to God. But Liberius was sadly mistaken, and it could have been very tragic if Athanasius had yielded to that mistake, and he wouldn't do it. So Athanasius is one prime example of someone who would not surrender to a mistaken pope. Now, to this day, Liberius is not referred to as Saint Liberius, even though he is preceded by and followed by a line of saintly popes who are regarded as saints. Even though Liberius was the one who laid the foundation for what is now St. Mary Major Basilica, and even though he had a good reputation in his lifetime, nonetheless, because of this error he made, he has not been recognized as a saint. He has no feast day. And uh, Athanasius, who would not surrender to his error, the error of the Pope, one who was recognized indisputably as as a true Pope, Because Athanasius would not obey, Athanasius actually has been held up as an example throughout all these centuries in the church of being faithful. He was not condemned for disobedience. Not by history, not by the church. And you fast forward 300 years, and you come to the example of another pope, Honorius I. You know about him, I mentioned him to you before. Uh, Honorius became the pope, in the year 625, and um, he actually reigned until, I think it was 638, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, So he was Pope quite some time, but he had a problem presented to him. Um, Sergius, the Patriarch of Constantinople, was trying to be ecumenical, and so he issued a statement of faith, a creed, which was so ambiguous that not only could the Catholics adhere to it, but the heretics could adhere to it. I didn't tell you before what the error was because I didn't want to complicate matters. The error was basically this. It was a denial that Jesus Christ had a functioning human will, that the only will functioning in him was a divine will. 
Well, if you take away the human will of Christ or the operation of the human will of Christ, what they called monophysitism and monothelitism, the name of the, the fancy Greek name for the heresy, then you have denied the very efficacy of Christ willingly laying down his life for us on the cross. Because he could not represent us, he could not make an act of the will of submission and obedience to God as man. And so this heresy, as conflated as it might sound, really ultimately would have denied the very idea of the, of the, of the, of the uh, I'm sorry, of the redemption of Christ's role in the redemption, redemption from the cross. This was nothing to mess around with. This was nothing to just gloss over as though it was insignificant. And there were churchmen, priests, who saw that this was wrong. And they notified Honorius. In fact, Sophronius appealed to Rome against what Sergius was doing. Sergius also, the patriarch of Constantinople who was behind this plot, he also appealed to Rome. The problem was that Honorius failed to do what he, as Pope, was obliged to do. And uh, actually, if you look in the Catholic Encyclopedia, that itself gives a very good synopsis in one paragraph of what Honorius did and what he did wrong. It says, It was now for the Pope to pronounce a dogmatic decision and to save the situation. He did nothing of the sort. His answer to Sergius did not decide the question, did not authoritatively declare the faith of the Roman Church, did not claim to speak with the voice of Peter. It condemned nothing. It defined nothing. Honorius entirely agrees with the caution which Sergius recommends. He praises Sergius for eventually dropping the new expression, one operation, but he unfortunately also agrees with Sergius that it would be better to avoid two operations, and to, in other words, admit the human will functioning in Christ. In other words, it goes on and says that Honorius failed miserably as Pope in his responsibility to uphold the faith. And in enjoining silence on everyone, he set the stage for a crisis in the church, a crisis which would lead for the second Pope after him being hounded down dragged back to Constantinople, put on trial because he, Martin I, finally answered the question. By that time, Honorius's failure had yielded terrible results, martyrs, and Martin I, a successor of Honorius himself, paid with his life for Honorius's failure. What was the result? Honorius was condemned 50 years after he died. Actually, Less than that, 40 years after he died, he was named anathema with Sergius and with all the heretics. He was named a heretic with them because, not that he he subscribed to the heresy, but he favored the heresy by his failure to condemn it. Now you take this one instance and you translate it to the current situation with those in Rome now, and you ask yourself, If this was how the church regarded this one pope who failed in this one way, what would they say about these men? How would the church judge these men and all that they've done to the church? Well, 
The important thing for us, though, is what did the church say, not so much about Honorius, not what the church said so much uh, about Sergius, but what did the church say about those who disobeyed a direct order of the Pope? The church canonized them. This is the mind of the church. This is the traditional teaching of the church about obedience. Those who refused to be silenced by the command of Honorius I, those who boldly spoke up, and even faced the emperor when they were dragged before him for breaking his law to be silent, he backed up Honorius's command with a law engaging silence on everybody, enjoining silence on everyone. And there were those like Max, such as Maximus the Confessor who paid with his life because he would not obey Honorius or the emperor. Sophronius, there are feast days in the church that we celebrate every single year for these two men. And they were the dis- disobedient ones. They were the ones who would not follow the evil command of a neglectful pope. And everyone acknowledged that he was a true pope. They were the ones who ever since have been considered by the Roman Catholic Church to be the heroes who saved the day by their quote-unquote disobedience. This gives you an understanding of what the church understands by true obedience. And the third example I'm going to give, and I'm sorry for going on like this, but it's a very, a very topical example. It is the example of a man named Robert Grossetesti. Robert Grossetesti was the Bishop of Lincoln in England. A very great churchman. The church has regarded him as a, a great hero of the church, a model bishop. In fact, after he died, uh, there was a great call for his being recognized as a saint. Uh, And uh, the church in many ways has endorsed him as a model for what a bishop should be. He was known in history for his knowledge of science and law and uh, his work with the Oxford University which was at one point in his diocese and so on. Now, I wanted to bring to you and then read to you some statements about him, but I I don't have it here, and I I apologize for that. But I will tell you this much, because I don't really need it. Robert Grossetesti was a bishop in the 1100s. In the 1100s, there was a great controversy over... Uh, lay investiture bishops, uh, lay princes putting, installing bishops to govern dioceses and heads of abbeys uh, uh, as abbots and so on. And the reason why they wanted, the lay princes wanted to be the ones to install their bishops, uh, the heads of the big abbeys and so on, is because there were a lot of revenues involved. There was a lot of money involved. These benefices, as they were called, brought a lot of money to the coffers that could, by his friends, abbots and bishops, could then direct the money to his own princely treasury. Not only that, but these men, if they were being rewarded for having supported him in in war, battle, any type of conflict, and proven their loyalty to him, would be rewarded by these positions. They were worldly men. The church resisted this tooth and nail. She fought against this tooth and nail. And she paid a very heavy price for it uh, because the church was persecuted very often by these 
worldly princes when the church resisted them doing that. Obviously, it was the people who suffered from this because those who took charge of the dioceses had no interest in their spiritual welfare. Well, here's the point. Sometimes the Pope, too, would indulge in doing this. And it was okay, as far as he was concerned, because, after all, it was the Pope imposing a bishop or imposing some other ecclesiastical official over a benefice. Well, Robert Grosseteste didn't see it that way. As Bishop of Lincoln, he found himself in a position where he repeatedly refused to obey. He repeatedly, repeatedly refused to obey popes, especially in this area. The Pope at one time appointed his own nephew to be accepted as the bishop of a diocese in England. This man, this nephew, was an Italian. He was never going to go to England. He was never going to take possession of his see. He was never going to visit his people. He was never going to do anything for them except collect the revenue from the diocese as a benefice. That was the whole point. Robert Grosseteste refused to acknowledge him, would not allow the man, the Italian nephew of the Pope, to take possession of the see. He adamantly refused to obey. And he said, I have responsibility for these souls, and I will not permit this, because this is wrong. This was one example of a number of examples where Robert Grosseteste took his responsibility seriously as a shepherd of souls, and he defied papal authority. And you know what? The Pope relented. Robert Grosseteste would not give way at all. To this day, he is considered to be a great churchman, not in spite of the fact that he refused to obey, but because he refused to concede on these issues. He was considered to be what a bishop should be in the face of an unjust and injurious order from a pope. This is the teaching of the Catholic Church. Now now notice, uh, Robert Grosseteste, sometimes uh, Honorius I, uh, sometimes even Liberius and Athanasius are used by non-Catholics as an argument against the papacy. But they're not, because all of these men had in common two things. They recognized the authority of true popes who were over them, and they realized that that authority did not extend to commanding things that were damaging to the church, damaging to the faith, and damaging to souls. And when it was a case of this, they were obedient in everything. Except that, they were like tigers or lions. They would not budge on any of these things. Because they knew it was wrong. That is the Catholic traditional Catholic understanding of obedience. Don't let anybody try to deceive you. As I mentioned in the little write-up I had in the bulletin, if somebody says to you that they are conservative Novus Ordo because that's what traditional Catholic obedience demands of them, you are disobedient and therefore you're not really traditional Catholic. You should say to them, you know, actually quite the contrary is true. Quite the contrary is true. 
that by your obedience to unlawful commands, by supporting this this whole systematic destruction of the Catholic faith, by giving it credibility, by letting them use uh, Latin and Gregorian chant and old vestments and even the 1962 Missal as a cover for what they've done to make it appear that these things are compatible. The new religion and the traditional religion, the new mass and the old mass and so on, by making it appear that these can coexist side by side in the same religion, in the same church with a capital C, you are actually running cover for them. You are the one who are aiding and abetting their destruction of souls, the faith in souls, the damage to the church. You are the one who is being disobedient. I am rather being obedient in the traditional Catholic sense because I have the examples of so many who have gone before me when a bad command was given, even by legitimate popes. And you have to acknowledge, though, that when the entire religion is under attack, you have to wonder who these people are who are doing it. Are we actually talking about legitimate pontiffs? Can vicars of Christ give you and change the religion lock, stock, and barrel and impose that on you until you have an obligation to accept it? Well, the religion is just the expression of the faith. And you can tell them, Look, I don't consider you conservative Novus Ordo Catholic. I can't. There's no such thing as a conservative Novus Ordo Catholic any more than there can be a liberal traditional Catholic. It, there's no such thing as a liberal traditional Catholic. How can there be a conservative Novus Ordo Catholic? There's no such thing. Either you follow the Novus Ordo and you cover for it by letting it co-op things that it initially tried to condemn, only reluctantly allowed, it is now using to deceive people. Or you go back and you practice the traditional Catholic faith in its entirety. There really is no other alternative. There's nothing in between that is a Catholic alternative, anyway. So in any case, let's, uh, let's be on our way here, and I'll let you escape. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. O Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. St. Joseph, pray for us. Our holy guardian angels, pray for us. Saints Peter and Paul, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.